Hello and welcome to today's podcast. I'm Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting and I'm joined today by Helen Evans, who is the Chief Executive at Network Homes, and by Jamie Ratcliffe, Executive Director. And we're talking about building safety. Helen, this has been an issue for you for a number of years, as as it is for a number of other parties in, in the not just the RP sector, but the wider housing universe. Tell us about some of the, the current issues that are keeping you awake at night. We are in a relatively advanced stage of remediating our buildings with building safety defects. We have some dozens of buildings over 18 metres requiring extensive work and some hundreds of buildings under 18 metres between 11 and 18 metres, which we have yet to investigate hmm. we have and that, de- that 80 meter just just to explain yeah. to listeners that might not understand that 18 meter point is 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 crucial because that is the point in which you, you do or do not receive support it's absolutely critical in terms of funding because buildings over 18 meters we have the either full government support for the removal of acm which is the cladding that was on the grenfell tower building or applications to a building safety fund to take other materials off those buildings and that means that the occupants of those buildings the residents of those buildings leaseholders and shared owners don't face any kind of financial implications or they face less financial implications than in buildings below 18 meters where the full cost may fall to the residents yeah yeah and in terms of the work you're doing then are you having to stump up the cost for all of this stuff or you have you got some of your previous contractors paying for it dealing with it It, it's a mixed picture some contractors have been really cooperative and responsible and stepped forward where it is clearly their work that is defective others have been less so some are in administration Mm. from the housing association's point of view unless there is full government support as with the acm program we are paying all of the costs in relation to tenanted homes so it's not as if the housing associations are not paying at all. Mm. But what does that then mean? So what, what does it mean if you have to stump up all the costs? What's the end result of that? Well, housing associations can only spend the money that they have once. So if we're spending money remediating defective buildings, then that's money that we can't put into other stock improvements or building new homes. So ultimately, it's those most in need that essentially suffer. Ultimately, it's people in need of a home who don't have one or people who live in a social housing home that requires investment that will wait longer for it. Mm. And Jamie Radcliffe, in terms of the the challenges that you're facing, what are some of the things that, that you'd like to see changed? I mean, clearly, this remains a gray area for everybody. And it's not simply a case of, bad cladding is it there are many more fundamental issues which are causing all these problems yeah and there's so many and how far back you go and probably like as far back as i would go would be the mid 80s when building control was outsourced and so you've got this kind of intellectually incoherent idea that by creating competition amongst the regulator you'll make it more effective but obviously people will be looking at the cheapest regulator they can pay for and the cheapest regulator will also obviously be the one who checks things least And so government kind of built in a system where building control was self-reinforcing, looking less 
at things. And I, I know when I had my own extension done, the builder said to me, kind of, we've got the cheapest building control here. It'll be easy. They'll only come once. Why would you pay more for somebody who's going to check it more? And that's played out across the board. As we've been building big, taller and more complex buildings, there's been some problems there's a lot of confusion in terms of what materials could go on the outside. And we've seen that post Grenfell, where lots of people say that government has retrospectively changed building regulations. But there's also lots of defects in terms of the way homes are, are built, a lack of supervision on site, and kind of every building that you look into in detail, there are some problems with it. But it's not possible, I guess, like so a house builder colleague I know said, you're never going to build buildings perfectly if you're building in a field. But equally, the regulations that we've got put in layers of protection in order to make buildings adequately safe. And we've seen some fires in buildings where they're some of the most dangerous buildings in the country, according to government stats, where the fire's been pretty contained. Um, there's other buildings that relatively um, few in number where there's been total losses for them being burnt out. And on paper, those buildings might have been mm. a lower risk. Mm. Generally, a building doesn't need to be perfect in order to be adequately and providing fire protection. And we had quite a good example in one of our buildings where there were lots of defects involved in it, but the rain screen was okay. There were questions over the insulation. And we did a, so first of all, we were paying something ridiculous like £30,000 a week for a waking watch, which hopefully we can come onto in a bit, which ended up costing us best part of a million pounds overall. But we had a test of it done, a, a large scale test. And it passed it spectacularly. The, the test mm. is it shouldn't get to the top of the third story within 30 minutes. Yeah. And this one charred lightly the top of the first story, but no further. The Grenfell rig burnt out completely in six minutes. So this is like orders of magnitude safer yeah. than that. But so there's still an let, intense let, debate. Let, let's dismantle that. Jamie's brain is racing well ahead of mine. He's got such a huge brain and it's hard for me to, to keep up sometimes. So, But there's, I mean, there's a couple of really key points there, Jamie. The first is, is the structural failings of the system. And Helen, is that something you agree with in, in terms of this? Because it's not just the fact that the government's changed the goalposts on what's allowed and what's not allowed. It's the fact that the system there to check this stuff doesn't work properly. Yeah, I mean, and I actually think that's the fundamental point here is that there's been a systemic failure. And, you know, it's had multiple elements in it. The constructors have failed. Commissioning agents have failed. We've had... I mean, I've said in, you know, different forums, we've got residents living on buildings who are saying to me, how is it that there can be a commissioning housing association, a lead developer, a contractor, an employer's agent, separate building control, NHBC, and these buildings are so defective that we're having to move people out to remediate them. How can that have happened? That's the very definition of systemic failure. And, you know, I think everybody has to sort of take a responsibility for their part in it, including, including the housing associations, but also including the government, who is ultimately responsible for the system of building safety in, in this country. I mean, what about the developers that have obviously made pretty vast profits over the years? Because many people will look at this and they'll look at the, the dividends being paid to some of the volume house builders that built a lot of this stock, and they'll be asking, well, why is it that X, Y, and Z listed company PLC are trousering billions of pounds of dividends over the last 15 years when arguably a third of all buildings built in the residential space are probably not fit for purpose? I think the developers of these buildings do have to take some responsibility, well, not some responsibility, significant responsibility for what's happened. And mm. some of them are. But a lot of them aren't. And, but some of them are not. And many of them are using mechanisms to distance the, you know, their core mm. 
business streams from the elements that actually were used in construction. People will put themselves into administration. Some of them naturally have gone out of existence anyway. Yeah. And that's the point, isn't it, Jamie, is that structurally the, the construction industry, which has been operating on 1%, 2% margins for over a decade, is able to slip the net. What would you be saying if you were still in your previous role at City Hall? Good question. Um, so I think government's got, like the Hackett Review, I think was a, a solid piece of work that um, had a lot of rigour in it and did approach risk in a sensible way of thinking about being very clear that you can't eliminate all risk, which you can't do in any walk of life, but putting in place sensible measures of what you can do and wanting buildings to be properly checked whilst they're being built and whilst they're in occupation. And kind of that's feeding through into mm. the Building Safety Act. But there's still a huge amount up for grabs, not only in the drafting of what's currently there, which will obviously change as it goes through Parliament, but also all the detail which is going to be in the regulations. And I think whilst we're at the moment grappling with the immediate problem of building safety, of what can we do to remediate buildings that need to be remediated, some kind of working out which ones do and don't, there are also some massive ongoing costs which are going to come from the Building Safety Act. And it's really important that we get those right yeah. it's the same principle that well, we let, don't let, let's focus on that because i think you make a good point talking about proportionality and the level of risk that we as a society prepared to tolerate and and, and helen mm. from your perspective as as the boss of a big housing association it ultimately falls on you if something terrible happens you're the person whose face is going to be all over the daily mail on a saturday morning so when we talk about how much acceptable risk there is. I mean, it's ultimately, it's your decision, right? You've got to go to your 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 board and your trustees and and, and have that argument. How how much risk should we tolerate? Because in any in any walk of life, as Jamie says, as with any product, clearly a house isn't the same as a as a toy or an electrical good or or even a car. But there is an acceptance that if you buy a car, the gearbox might fail or the engine might blow up or, or something like that. I think we're caught in a terrible conundrum uh, in relation to building safety, which is pretty much a direct result of the Grenfell disaster, which was the most terrible thing that I've you know seen in anything associated with the industry that I work in ever. And I'm sure that would be true for everybody, but it has made it almost impossible for people to talk about proportionality in a reasonable way in relation to fire safety in particular, and building safety in general. And it was quite clear quite early on in the aftermath of Grenfell that that was going to be the case. And it's had multiple implications. And one of those implications is the absolute risk aversion of all professionals in all parts of the sort of building construction chain to take any kind of reasonable statement on proportionate risk. And the G15, myself and others, have been saying for quite a long time we've got to get a, some parameters around this because there is no possibility of no risk. Mm. And we've got to start taking a more rational approach to cost, benefit, risk, reality. You know, reality is another issue here that doesn't get talked about enough. We are seeing in the potential requirements of housing associations that we are expected to check people's front entrance doors to their flats every three months. That's an unrealistic, in my view, that's an unrealistic and unnecessary requirement. 
but mm. people are very reluctant to make any kind of inference that something's unrealistic or overly expensive mm. or, so what or disproportionate. Those, uh, so, so what, that was the example I was going to use, actually. Yeah. So for me, about risk management isn't about ticking a box to show you've done something, which is the worst kind of stuff of like, let's cover our asses by showing we've done something to address it. What you want to do is think about what's the actual risk you're addressing and what can you do to resolve it. And so door closers are a really good one. They clearly contributed to the Grenfell disaster, the fact that loads of them were broken. You want doors to be able to self-close and act as a barrier but by trying to check them every three months that's a huge cost not only because you'll probably need the courts to get in to help you do it but the mechanism is pretty simple it's basically a spring and it will sometimes snap not in a predictable way like a mechanical engine or boiler might do where you can see it going wrong it's going to snap one day or the resident might disconnect it and the resident could disconnect it the day day after after you check it even if you go every three months yeah so what actually you want to do is try and empower people to take responsibility and so the best way of addressing that risk in my opinion would be telling people how important self-closers are they can be a pain when you're getting the shopping in but they're one of the things that's keeping you and your neighbors safe tell us if it breaks and we'll make that a priority repair Mm. to come and um, sort it out that would actually make people safer but it would give you less ticks on a um, checklist and so Mm. it's the Focusing on the risk is the important thing. And the me. same thing applied to waking watches, didn't it? Is that, you know, waking watches. That's where the big cost is, isn't it? Waking watches. Well, it's one of the big costs. Waking watches became the default. You know, you've got faults put in a waking watch. As soon as we started doing it, we began receiving photographs on an almost daily basis of this is the waking watch asleep over here and this is the waking watch on his phone over there. And, you know, the residents quickly realized that this isn't actually adding very much. To it's their costing lots safety. of money. It's costing lots of money and it's ticking a box for all of those in charge. You think, well, we've done everything we can, we've put a waking watch in. Mm. Wasn't actually having a material impact on the safety of those people. And indeed, some of the big fires that have occurred have not, you know, had waking watch in place, but not been discovered by the waking watch, but by the residents who've then alerted their neighbours who have evacuated New Providence Wharf, where they'd paid thousands and thousands of pounds for a waking watch. According to the eyewitness accounts, the waking watch didn't get anybody out. People were alerted by the WhatsApp group. So they could have bought everyone shiny new iPhones for every Mm. single person in the block, saved money and still been just as safe. Mm. So going back to Helen's point then on parameters and having some parameters in place, what should those look like? I mean, what what does a common sense approach look like here? Give us some other... Well, I, I think Jamie referenced the Hackett Review, and one of the things that the Hackett Review emphasised was look at layers of protection, so look at the building in its totality. So we've got a building, we're still arguing about this building, but it's got cladding. It's not ACM cladding, but a cladding type that we are being told we ought to consider removing. This building's got two exits out of con, you know, concrete construction stairways. It's got a full sprinkler system. It's 12 stories high and it's got 24-hour concierge and a fire alarm system. Is it really necessary to spend millions of pounds removing this cladding, which has been in situ for, you know, 20 years? There have been fires in the building. We haven't had a catastrophe. What you ought to be able to say in that instance is that there are sufficient other protective measures that even if the cladding did catch fire, you would get everybody mm. out or you would get I mean, was most that not, out. Jamie, was that not what the government had said that it had set out initially on building regs around some of these dangerous claddings? Was the view that they were acceptable 
in a situation where you had particular types of sprinkler system or other mitigating devices in place. Yeah, so I guess that's the basis for building regulations. Were they checked properly? A question mark. But then there's other things that have happened since, like the ban on combustible materials and the way that government has evolved its guidance, including through the 22 advice notes that were then consolidated, none of them written entirely precisely enough for the way that they've been used. Mm. And then when you layer that on top, as Helen said, with people whose insurers are pushing up their premiums significantly, having to act in a very risk-averse way, you'll get professionals advising you saying, this is the only way to make it completely safe. Yeah, so it's a chain reaction of knee-jerk reactions. But which then, yeah, multiplies out and becomes harder and harder. And yeah, I I think government has a, a lot to blame for the way it's reacted, the way it's changed things, and the advice that it's put out. It's I mean, welcome. What, what about now. if government... Uh, if the government looked at, at, at being an insurer of last resort on some of these, is that something that you think could I have? think I think there's scope to investigate that idea. And I think it is something that we've proposed or we've asked for consideration of previously. I mean, you know, the instances of these catastrophic fires, terrible though they are, and I don't include Grenfell in this because obviously that was a human disaster rather than a sort of material disaster, but where buildings have been lost but no life has been lost, the cost is financial and it's tiny compared to what is now being expended on trying to make buildings absolutely safe. Mm. So clearly you've got to have a focus on the preservation of life, of the ability to get people out of buildings when they're on fire and so on. But looking at the material loss probability in a more rational way with perhaps the government underwriting as insurer of last resort, I think is something that's worth considering. Mm. And and I think underneath all this, Helen, we need to remember the effect on individuals, don't we? Because ultimately leaseholders are obviously having to pick up a lot of the tab here. And that that's essentially what, what your what your complaint is around the proportionality of costs. Yeah, I mean there is a there is a massive human dimension to this and that you know that in itself has lots of angles i mean i don't want to be dismissive of the impact of this on tenants because certainly after the grenfell disaster we did lots of public meetings with people living in our tall buildings and the fear was palpable now some of that we were able to ameliorate for example by retrofitting sprinkler systems and so on but the long-term effect has been on leaseholders and shared owners who are unable to sell property or unable to remortgage or otherwise deal with, you know, life events like marriages and partnerships breaking up or having additional children and so on, and who are stuck in this situation because quite often the future is unknown. It's not even that this is definitely going to cost 25 grand and, you know, I can afford it or I can't afford it. People don't know whether it's going to cost a lot of money the lenders won't lend people people are stuck and they, and you know there is for those people also i mean i think there is a massive sense of injustice at the sort of almost random nature of whether the government pays or it doesn't and that, pay that, that, and that, the fact that this is whose fault is it definitely not it's definitely not their fault mm. but the part of the issue here is that depending on going back to where we started depending on whether you live above or below 18 meters that can vastly affect whether you're 50 grand out of pocket or, or none absolutely jamie in terms of how network has responded to this this was an issue for for the housing association before grenfell wasn't it yeah so um, and before i joined network that we had a building which has had 
sort of massive internal compartmentation problems. And I think that's what, one of the reasons why networks being ahead of the game because dealing with basically deconstructing a building from the inside out. So peeling off the cladding and looking at all of the, the stuff under the bonnet that's wrong. Well, so initially it was just all the internal stuff. So there wasn't proper compartmentation between flats. So flats basically had to be deconstructed and then rebuilt from the inside out. Then it was subsequently found there are problems with cladding and that's ongoing. Hopefully the scaffolding is going to be struck soon and the people living there are going to be able to get back to normal fairly soon. I, I think the thing as well as investigating really rapidly, the thing that we've done that I'm proud of at Network is around transparency with our residents and being sort of very open with them and trying to share and provide as much information as possible. And we had some debates about that internally of like when we're not sure, and that's the issue with all of this, that we're not sure at lots of different stages, how much information should you share? And kind of we were inclined that we wanted to share more, treat people as adults. And we had those conversations with our resident panels and got a very clear steer from them that just because you don't know the exact number, you shouldn't be keeping the fact that our building might not be safe, share what you know. And so therefore with our high risk buildings, we've got a very proactive communications program where we'll be writing to people every six weeks, telling them about what's happening, telling them where we are with remediation, with all the different applications for funding and various things, and then transparently share on our website all of the documents, including the EWS1 forms when they're signed off. Mm. And that doesn't make what's an awful situation for many residents lots better, but it's us doing what we can. And it's definitely been appreciated by a number of our leaseholders that we are doing that. Mm. And, in, and in terms of how we how we look to fix this over the next few years i mean is there is there a small ray of light here in the climate agenda and the need to upgrade and refurbish buildings to make them more efficient more energy efficient does that potentially helen give us a give us a route i suppose to to find a way out of this i think one of the things that would be rational is if you were able to establish that a building is safe enough to combine any fire remediation work that you fire safety system remediation work that you need to do with any work that you may need to do to reduce the carbon emissions from that building. Unfortunately, the timetables aren't working very well together. It's a bit like when we dig up the road, you'll see Virgin Media roll up to Puffton Broadbrad and Thames yeah. Water will turn up the, the month later and then the gas board and then... Yeah, because all of this is pretty much being done on a kind of reactive basis quite a lot of work is not being, you know, viewed mm. as a sort of let's do something holistic with this building that will make it better in lots of different ways. So could the government it's, then take a proactive stance and say, look, guys, we're going to support a retrofit program to green hundreds of thousands of units of housing stock that at the same time can maybe mitigate some of the safety issues? They could do that, but they would have to find a way. And one of the things that we've been saying throughout this crisis is we have to find a way of unlocking this position for the individual people and households whose lives are being, you know, materially impacted by, in other words, allowing them to move, to sell, to... I mean... It's difficult to come up with absolute solutions to, you know, a situation where people can't sell a flat because people might not be able to sell a flat just because, you know, the market's collapsing or whatever. But to get this particular problem out of the way so people can get on with their lives, if that could be achieved by the government, then we could take more time to remediate the buildings where work is needed and combine it with the, you know, massive amount of work that's going to have to be done in terms of carbon emissions and retrofitting as well but that that's complicated and it needs time and this is an immediate problem for 
hundreds of thousands of people. Mm. And, and, I, I, and I think government decarbonisation and government action might hold the answer to this, but in a slightly counterintuitive way. And like, despite some great efforts by the leaseholder groups, and there's some great ones of UK Cladding Action Group, Manchester Cladiators and all other, have done huge amounts of work to drive it up the political agenda and the media agenda. It's not biting as a massive issue for government yet. I think the thing that could is I expect before COP that government's going to come out with some big plan on retrofitting all homes across the board, which when somebody works it through is going to see that's going to be 60 grand, 80 grand for every single homeowner in the whole country, at which point there will be massive uproar and people will focus on why are the government making us do this level of costs, which makes our home unsaleable. Um, and so effectively, I think that government could create this same problem for everybody in the whole country, at which point there'll be the political impetus to solve it for building safety as well as decarbonisation. Mm. But there are ways to look at financing such upgrades through the differential in energy costs, for example. Anything where there's a saving can be capitalised. Yeah. I mean, at the moment, there's a disconnect, isn't there? Because, of, well, this is from a landlord point of view. The investment is all from the landlord and the saving is generally to the household. Mm. Um, and we are looking at financing methods that would somehow share that benefit between the landlord and the household so that the the saving can be capitalised and work can be financed in that way. I mean, there are lots of people looking at mechanisms for doing that, although mm. I don't think that many have been... Mm. Not only been that successful, and the, the other problem is, is there's been loads of these innovative technologies which don't actually generate any savings or maybe even make it worse and, and or don't work. And I think from my point of view, there's been too much experimentation on people on low incomes of saying, let's stick all this tech into social housing, either through retrofit or new build. And it doesn't work. And it should be people on lowest incomes where their fuel bills are making the biggest impact. So we should be protecting them, not experimenting on them. Mm. But there definitely should be ways of, of funding it. But equally, though, there are going to be technologies that do change the game and we're going to need to test them. Yeah, I mean, I think what Jamie's referring to is kind of being the first mover on new technologies at, at scale, which has got quite a poor track record, I think. Mm, mm. And, you know, then we're, we're putting in heat systems which are designed to be cheaper and easier to run for the household and actually they don't deliver that. And those are very often the poorest people in our community that's mm. not where you should be experimenting with these technologies well maybe. yeah i know I mean, in terms I, of getting them to scale definitely there should be great scope for housing associations who can roll it out at pace um at scale to work together to yeah. be able to make mm. technology that does work cheap enough to roll out and then make it cheaper for more people as production ramps up mm. but in terms of i, I guess just just to finish off in terms of the the building safety act and and and, and legislation that's working its way through the system now what are if we had to to identify three things from this conversation that your fellow rps and, and other people in the sector should be getting behind and should be starting to make some noise there's things that we can do to make some noise as well what would those three things be i think the continued focus on proportionality and reality perfect is the enemy of the good we need something we need good enough regulation we need good enough systems we need good enough enforcement but don't invent a whole load of things that are almost impossible to implement that would be my first yeah no totally one. agree with that my other one would be like ironically like looking at ews ones the forms for lenders and valuers that we haven't got into detail on 
governments tried to solve that by saying like reality is different from what it is and that doesn't often work whereas actually it's got the answer at its fingertips from all the funding that it's announced for over 18 meters and the financing solution below 18 meters both of them it said it's certain will be easy to apply for they just haven't announced the details if they just got on and announced the details and it was as certain as they've described it loads of those problems would go away and so like that's my main message to government focus on those two things which you've announced deploy them as quickly as possible as certainly as possible mm. Helen, is there, is there a final thing from you before we go? I think in all of this, we should recall that housing provision and housing management, you know, everybody needs a warm, safe, decent place to live and that we don't want to achieve absolutely gold-plated standards over here if it's at the expense of people who are in temporary accommodation or unsatisfactory accommodation or overcrowded accommodation there are there are you have to do more than one thing at once mm. and in this case we definitely do we have to make these homes safe or if they are safe we have to acknowledge that they're safe enough but we have to continue to develop new homes for people who don't mm. don't have satisfactory accommodation yeah and, and that's the point isn't it it's remembering that that all of these things have a knock-on effect and that knock-on effect is invariably going to dent the supply of affordable housing at a time where where it's already been smashed around the head continuously for years with with chips to the grant and subsidies so well, look let's leave it there there's a lot to crunch out of that and and this debate is going to continue certainly for the next few months and, and potentially the next few years be fantastic to get some further debate and some responses to some of these suggestions from helen evans and jamie radcliffe from from network homes thank you so much for coming in and chatting about housing on on propcast do stay in touch do subscribe to propcast on spotify on apple just search propcast online and do come back to propertyweek.com for further news and insights i've been andrew teacher from Blackstock consulting and this podcast is engineered by alex peel produced by howard martin thank you so much for listening we'll see you again soon Thank you.